0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And and we're, we're The, the Trade, trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we're going to talk the topsy-turvy situation with China, what's gone on this week with the markets, with the currency manipulation, accusation what is going on with the U.S. and China. Plus, we welcome a special in-house guest. John Hillman is a senior fellow with the CSIS Simon Chair. John also directs the Reconnecting Asia Project at CSIS, which tracks new roads, railways, ports, and other infrastructure across Eurasia and China's Belt and Road Initiative. We'll discuss what the Belt and Road Initiative is, how it might be affecting global trade, and what the initiative says about China's economic vision. You'll hear all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. And we're off. This week, gentlemen, was a little insane with what's going on with China. We had a big back and forth with the Chinese. They're currency manipulators, according to the Trump administration. The market had a precipitous fall. Today, though, it's back up as we speak at 3.30 on Uh, What are we, Tuesday, at 3.30 on Tuesday, it's back up 277 points and and climbing. What's going on, trade guys? Tell us your wisdom. Just as a starting point, it looks to me like the president is frustrated.
1: Uh, he's the, yeah, the he's negotiation, frustrated. negotiations aren't going as as he anticipated, uh, and so he's taking action. Actually, what it looks like is a is a sort of classic pressure or leverage move on his part. Um, I think there's some disappointment involved. The currency manipulation charge is a little uh, odd, and mostly because it seems to have been a relatively short term effect.
0: Well, they uh, think we're currency manipulators too, don't well, they?
1: They, they? Look, the, we're th- about to be.
2: I think w- That's we, what we, we, me. Okay. we may be.
1: It's a little harder for us to. To actually move it, but uh, the the Treasury Department does have criteria. They do evaluate it, uh, all currencies every six months by statute. Uh, and uh, China didn't meet the criteria for currency manipulated at the last regular uh, evaluation. Uh, but it does now. and and being labeled a currency manipulator doesn't have any immediate, uh, action, I mean, other than being called sort of you're a bad economy right? yeah. or something like that, it's uh, it's it's a messaging thing. Uh, at the same time, because the financial system is quite complicated, there's only so much the that the Chinese can do in terms of lowering the value of the RMB without creating a lot of internal risks. Uh, for instance, if you're a Chinese company, you're buying and selling an RMB, if you have financing from a foreign bank, it's probably in a foreign currency. So yesterday, if you're a Chinese entity uh, selling and buying in RMB, which dropped precipitously, and you're repaying your loans in yen, which went up precipitously, that's the that's the recipe for uh, default, and is essentially the 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 very thing when it persisted, which caused the the Asian financial crisis in in or the start of the Asian financial crisis in 1997. So this really can't go on too long, and, and it looks like today the, the the China began to defend the RMB. It didn't fall further, and that I think calmed markets.
0: Okay, so did they think they had us in a tough place? You know, I or did they, I? I don't really understand this. I have to tell you, it felt like we were at a disadvantage all of a sudden because
2: we got tough with them. But is that not the case? The charitable explanation, and kind of my take on it, is that this happens a lot when, when leaders or principals get together. They don't like to be confrontational with each other. They're right. confrontational when they're away from each other. Yes. But when they're in the same room together, they they don't do that. And they talk past each other. And so they came out of Osaka announcing that they'd agreed uh, without really understanding what the other guy was saying. And it seemed to me that uh, Trump clearly thought that the Chinese promised to buy more agricultural products. Uh, and uh, that's he, what he wanted to hear. And, and that's what he wanted to hear. And he thinks that's what they said. Uh, and they haven't at least as many or as much as he wants. It looks like she thought that Trump, Agreed there wouldn't be any new tariffs right away Yep, because they were going to come back to the table. Uh, and so Lighthizer and Mnuchin come back from Shanghai, report not a lot of progress. Trump loses it, announces the tariffs. Uh, for Xi, that's—and uh, announces, you know, that that uh, the Chinese are not buying enough agricultural products. So from Trump's perspective, it's a breach of faith on the Chinese part. From Xi's standpoint, it's a breach of faith on the American part. Uh, and then it's Trump doing what he, you know, announcing the tariffs, uh, which is a classic leverage move, as you said. And then I think the, what, what the Chinese have done is to say, in effect, not too subtly, hey, we got tools, too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they – nobody thinks they forced the RMB down. All they did was stop defending it. Uh, and it went down of yes. its own accord That's because right. those market forces are going to take it down because their economy is slowing down. Sure. So what, what they've done for the last year is prop it up, which is ironic because when you tell them not to manipulate their currency, you're, in fact, they, to the extent they've been manipulating their currency, it's been to help us, not hurt us. And they stopped doing that. Uh, So it went down. There's a tool they announced yesterday. They're not going to buy any more agricultural products. Another tool. Yes. I mean, they're dropping hints all over the place that the Trump view was because we have a big deficit with them, we have more leverage. We buy all this stuff and they don't buy as much stuff. We can hurt them more than they can hurt us. I win, and what the Chinese are saying? No, it's more complicated than that. We got a lot of other tools.
1: Yes, and while we may or may not have more leverage because of the size of the deficit, China definitely has more ability to withstand or tolerate irritation and pain. Uh, so uh, just their politics are different. At the other, you know, and and, and
0: their investors are not necessarily going to be able to call up their leader and yeah. say, "Hey, I lost." X millions of sure. dollars, if not billions today, and I don't like it.
1: Yes. Now, yesterday was the worst day in equity markets for 2019. That's right. And now every year has a worse day. It just happened. And so,
2: but it's and, noteworthy, just on that, that the market is lower now than it was in January 2018. That, that for
1: me, is the key, is when this all started about January 2018, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average, at least, as a, as a benchmark, is lower today than it was in, Jan- in January So all, 2018. These, all these gains we made are erased. Well, the thing is, that says the equity prices are equal despite a strong economy, despite despite strong corporate earnings, which says there's some uncertainty there. There's some uh, there's some questions about investment. So overall, when you look at over the period of eighteen, so it's not it's not months, that the, it's
0: not that the gains we made there are, are erased. It's that there's uncertainty.
1: Yes the, the the markets the markets have been basically flat for eighteen months during the time of this
0: controversy with China. So if you're Trump. And your claim to fame is you make good deals, you exert leverage, and you get results. maybe that's not the case here he's
1: he's at a point of stalemate at the moment
2: it's exactly what we've said it's it, it, it's an unusual it, for me it was an unexpected development. I had the great good luck to be in Canada while all this happened, so I didn't have to think about it too much. but I mean we've talked about this before eventually he's going to figure out that he's not going to get what he wants. And then he has to decide whether to settle for less and call it victory or continue the war and keep on fighting. This to me is kind of an unexpected blip. You know, he reacted, probably overreacted. I think they decided that they've had enough and uh, needed to send some signals about what, uh, you know, there are limitations to what they're going to put up with. Uh, What I hope does not happen is that, you know, the logical doubling down response for Trump is we're going to devalue the dollar which is a lot easier said than done. And more pressure on the Fed to do that because the US government, not the Fed, the government doesn't have enough money to do that on its own. So the Fed would have to cooperate. The only way you can do that if you're in the United States is if you, if you line up all your allies to right. help you, which is what yeah. we did yeah. in the, the Plaza Accord in 80, was the last time it, 85 or 86. Right. But I can see Trump trying to muscle the Fed into doing this. At some point, it sounds we like did, a lot of work. Well, at some point, we have to have an adult who says, "This is stupid." You know, if you get into a cycle of competitive devaluations, the last time we did that was during the depression, and it did not have a happy ending.
1: Yeah, my sense is that I, that it's going to be an interesting month because the tariff uh, increases are suspended or will take effect September one. So there's some time for things to calm down here a little bit, and it could be that the president decides that. We're going to live with this for a while, and he's not going to try to escalate. Uh, also, you know, I would just point out that China, when China says we're not buying American farm goods anymore, it's not like the Chinese or their livestock are going to stop eating. Okay, they're going to buy some imported products, likely from other economies, and the, there'll be some global demand for global global exports. Uh, but but it is a pretty pretty direct message. I would agree with
0: that. Politically, what's his game here is is that what's his end game is that he's going to play this out for a while and then figure out a way to come in and save the day and take credit that he ultimately won is that is that the end game you mean trump yeah trump
2: i think he has to play it out for a while because in the end it's going to be less than he wants and he has to sell it as a victory and the best time to do that is shortly before the election right. so people won't know it's bad until after they voted. So he has to string this out for a year, and yeah, this is a way to do that, just keep people Which guessing. Which roughly what we talked about a week ago in, it the, is. in the tweet storm.
0: Right, but so, okay, but what I don't understand is while he strings this out, maybe some Republicans have tolerance for, you know, that string of uh, of a game, but Do investors and serious business people have that kind of tolerance for that kind of pain? the president's China policy is
1: astonishingly popular in Washington. Yeah. It is one of two things that, in my view, there is actual bipartisan support for. The other thing is dealing with big tech, where both Republicans and Democrats agree something has to be done. They don't agree on the something. But when it comes to China, U.S.-China economic policy, the president has a lot of support right at the moment. And I wouldn't the, expect that to change overnight.
0: OK, but what what about the rich people that President Trump absolutely cares about, rich guys in New York that are his peers that call him on the phone and say, hey, you know, we don't like this?
1: Well, look, Congress is out of town for five weeks and, uh, you know, this is – summer is a time when interesting things happen, so – we'll have to watch it.
0: All right. Well, we're going to have to watch it. As promised, though, we also have a very special guest with us here today, John Hillman, Senior Fellow at CSIS and the Simon Chair. He's also Director of the Reconnecting Asia Project at CSIS. Now, for those of you who don't know about Reconnecting Asia, it is an amazing project and a website that analyzes China's Belt and Road, and it maps and analyzes all of China's new roads and railways and ports and all the infrastructure that's emerging across the supercontinent that is known as Eurasia. John, welcome. Thanks for having me. We got a lot to ask you. Let's start with Belt and Road 101. What is it? What are some of the examples of
3: projects and why is China doing it? So I think we're still trying to figure out what it is, Um, but this is Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy vision, Um, and it's something he announced in 2013. It initially included um, an overland component, which is referred to as the belt, and a maritime component, which is confusingly referred to as the road. Wouldn't and it be the other way around? You would. I mean, you you know? would hope so, but this is what they went with. And there, well, there is a huge maritime focus to this. Okay. And so they've got ports. There's no good got, word for they've it. They've got that covered. I'm sure there are plenty of words for it. Okay. Um, and in fact, you know, this is this is actually good advice for them. I think they're they're in a way trying to rebrand. The Belt and Road Initiative, maybe not by changing um, the name per se, but the brand has not done so well over the past few yeah. years since it's been announced.
0: Belton Road sounds kind of harsh. It sort, of, yes. sort of sounds like, like, a, like a failed spark plug commercial or something like that.
3: Yeah, like,
1: it sounds like the drills we used to do in when two-a-day football practices in the summer.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: okay,
2: 20 Belton Road. Right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. 20 Belt and <laughs> Road. Right? I got it, yeah. I just think Belt and Suspenders. Oh, yeah. that and Suspenders sure. is too much. Yeah, go with well, Exactly. Other. That's the point.
0: So, so who came up with Belt and Road? Why why, why Belt and Road?
3: So this is, again, Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy vision. Um, and it includes it's a whole host of yeah. initiatives. So it includes infrastructure, which is the component that we track very right. closely at the Reconnecting Asia project. Um, China's got seven of the world's 10 largest construction firms. Um, and so they have these massive companies, a huge incentive to go build beyond their borders. So this is allowing them to do, to do that. Uh, Belt and Road, according to the policy documents, also is supposed to include trade agreements. Um, There's supposed to be a network of trade agreements set up among Belt and Road countries. You know, there's a lot of bilateral deal making going on. It's not like China's doing a multilateral deal under the Belt and Road.
0: Well, John, you're a trade guy. I mean, as as many who know you in the policy world know, you were a policy advisor at the office of the USTR. Um, You know,
3: what's the big trade component of Belt and Road? So, the physical infrastructure component of it actually involves selling goods to countries, um, you know, often by providing the export financing for China to do that. Um, when those links, if they are completed, that could also encourage trade as well, facilitate trade. Um, and then Belt and Road you know, includes a whole host of policy coordination, um, including things like improving customs arrangements to promote trade between countries.
1: Does uh, China have what we'd call a model agreement of some sort, the model bilateral agreement that they try to strike, or is it is it improvised based on the partner?
3: We have seen a few differences in the agreements that they negotiate, which are which are interesting. Um, not a lot of the agreements are public. Um, and in fact, they're quite weak if you were to compare them to something like a real trade agreement. Sure. Um, often at the, the bottom of these, they're MOUs, and they will literally say at the bottom, this is not a legally binding document. Um, and it's very aspirational. You know, we're going to promote connectivity over the following dimensions. So more of
1: a press conference than a,
3: yes, than a trade agreement. Very so, much so, so, yeah. yeah.
0: So, John, what, are they, what is China accomplishing so far with Belt and Road?
3: So I think in the early years of Belt and Road, which, by the way, this, according to Chinese officials, is supposed to be a multi-decade effort, so we are still, by one count, we're, we haven't even hit the implementation phase yet. Um, in the early phase of this, there's a lot of political interest among other countries in participating in this, and I think there's something really powerful about that. You know, China's offered a vision to provide infrastructure to any developing countries who urgently need infrastructure and don't have a lot of great alternatives. Um, and so I think, you know, if as we think about what the U.S. should be doing, you know, it seems to me that offering some kind of positive alternative, not necessarily infrastructure, although we could do a little bit of that. Um, but China's offered a very positive oriented vision for the region that speaks to the needs of developing countries. So there's something very attractive about that. Um, We could could talk about whether, you know, all the promises that are being made are actually being followed, um, but there's something at least very attractive about the framing of it.
0: Who are they making the promises to? The countries in Eurasia that they're going to invest in them and then they're not delivering? Is that the case?
3: So at the first Belt and Road Forum, which was in uh, May of 2017 in Beijing, there were about 30 or so heads of foreign states that showed up. So I think that, I take that as a pretty significant sign of support for this. Sure. Um, and then they had representatives from other countries and international organizations. When the big dog calls a meeting, you show up. The, yeah, when Xi Jinping throws a Belt and Road party, everyone, yeah. everyone yeah. comes. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, you want to be there for the, get the handshake and the photo.
3: Yeah, And the sure. MOU, you know, <laughs> you want that MOU. MOU. Yes. And um, at the most recent forum in April, I think the count was up to 39 heads of state. And so hmm. even though this thing has really had some, some negative experiences, in recent years. Um, they got even more, even more leaders to show up. They had people show up, um, you know, heads of state from Pakistan and Malaysia, um, who campaigned and in, in basically in some ways against the Belt and Road, took office, they're in office, they gave speeches essentially endorsing the Belt and Road at the recent forum.
1: Now, this is often portrayed in the media as a sort of a bet on land transport, on, on connecting the Asian continent via land routes. Uh, and land infrastructure. Now, last I checked, most world trade moves on water. The container ship has is far and away the most efficient way to move goods uh, and and building an infrastructure for what will ultimately be a less efficient transportation means doesn't strike me as a genius idea but what what else is going on here what what, what is, is first is that portrayal
0: correct well and this and is also kind of, this is the new silk road what's obviously. behind it yeah. right
3: so that's that's a lot of the imagery um, and i think a lot of the the marketing around this the parts that have been successful they evoke the ancient silk road and you think of camels and caravans marco and marco polo yeah sure and so china has been increasing um you know several Types of connectivity with Europe going across across land.
1: Now, what we'll point out it was the Silk Road, not the Consumer Electronics Road. <laughs> so right. you only moved things that were light and valuable, right? Because it was really expensive.
3: So, yeah. so the I think the China-Europe rail services are a great example of this. You know, about 15 years ago, there were almost no weekly reliable services, okay. direct services from China to Europe by rail. There's now over 50 cities in China and over 50 cities in Europe connected by these. However. Heavily subsidized by the Chinese, yes, and really the business case, as you point out, is for those higher value items like you know shipping computers and yeah, um, that that all ends up on the
1: coasts and is moving on water. Right, but there are a lot of big inland cities in China, and being able to connect them is is quite an undertaking. So,
2: is it advantageous to ship? Say you're in Shanghai. Uh, manufacturing something, is it advantageous in terms of time and, and cost to ship overland to Rotterdam, or is it cheaper
3: uh, and faster to go by boat? So it's about half the time to go um, overland by rail, but it is more expensive. And that includes the subsidies from China, which you know may, maybe they continue indefinitely because they like this as an advertising mechanism. Um, but you know, if they are eventually come mm-hmm. off, I think the price goes up on that even even further.
2: And it's more expensive because the per unit costs are greater because you can't move as much cargo with in a single train as you can on a container ship. I guess really,
1: I'm, I mean, the most energy efficient vehicle is the the, the super large container ship in terms of of uh, energy expended per. Mile moved per pound of goods, so far and far and away, ocean shipping is 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 more energy efficient, therefore more cost efficient. At the end of the day, it also requires less infrastructure because you don't have to build a you don't have to build rails to move the boats.
2: No, but you do have to have special loading and unloading to, facilities y- yes, at each at each port. Which
1: rail rail
2: operations have that as
1: well have have some have terminals that 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 are used for that but but overall the the reason people prefer shipping is now particularly in the world of these super large container ships it has efficiency advantages very difficult to overcome subsidies help but
3: they don't get it all the way there and your shipping route with maritime shipping is more flexible too right. you don't have to go you know back and forth between point A and point B. And a huge challenge for these new rail services is that coming back from Europe, they're often empty. Yeah. There are lots of empty rail cars. Yeah,
1: now, you have a substantial land mass, and just like in the United States, efficient freight rail is a very important transportation service in the U.S. And we, we, we benefited by the fact that U.S. freight rail is very efficient. So China replicating that would be actually a, a useful thing for the interior because it's a big country too.
0: So John, you mentioned that some of the promises haven't necessarily been delivered. I take it part of this isn't just building capacity to export and all that. It's also building relationships with these countries where China can have exert influence mm-hmm. and China can really lay the groundwork for
3: dominating
0: the region. Is, how has how is that gone as a result of this plan?
3: So I think you see that influence exerted even before projects are done. Countries will do things in order to attract the financing, attract deals. Um, and so you even have a few examples in Central and Eastern Europe. Countries like Hungary have taken political positions um, that favor China and you know, have, have weakened EU statements on human rights and other areas in order to attract that, that financing. What's the
2: story in Italy? I seem to hear mixed r- reports, but they signed something and now they're sort of saying maybe we didn't mean it quite that way.
3: Is that right? So Italy is an interesting case. I mean, it's the it's the largest economy to sign an MOU for the Belt and Road so far. Um, and you know, it, when it was done, I think the U.S. took it as a slight um, because we were advising them not to do that. Um, But it is one of those documents that, again, at the bottom, it says, this is not a legally binding document. And, you know, it it was signed when Xi Jinping visited Italy. I think the other thing that's interesting is he then went on to France. France has not signed a Belt and Road MOU, announced probably five to six-fold more deals with China. So signing up is not a precondition for doing business with China. It
1: used to be G7 members kind of thought about what we cared about, what we thought about. Mm (laughs) <laughs>
3: I'm not so sure that's the case now. <laughs> uh, you talked about how the US had reacted. How has the US handled this whole thing so far, both Obama and uh, Trump? In the Obama administration, this was even earlier days of Belt and Road, um, there was awareness of it. Again, I think an attempt to analyze and figure out what this thing was about. But at the time, you know, the US also had its own positive economic vision for Asia, and TPP. And so, the U.S. didn't spend a lot of time criticizing Belt and Road because it had something positive to now, offer. Now, we
1: took a pass on the AIIB,
0: right, the Asia mm-hmm. Infrastructure
1: When
2: Well, not Bank.
3: just a pass. We tried to get everybody else to take a pass. Yes,
2: right.
0: right. Well, and we were busy criticizing what was going on in the South China Sea, mm-hmm. which brings me to another question. I mean, are there concerns that Belt and Road projects
3: are laying the groundwork for Chinese military bases? Are those concerns valid? So some of those concerns are valid. I think that there's all these infrastructure projects are, are dual use. You know, A port that works really well can be used um, for cargo ships. It can be used for naval vessels. And as a, as a sort of analytical matter, it's often very difficult to separate those two things because lots of the characteristics that make a port good commercially also give it some military utility. We see cases where a port is being developed near another port that already has excess capacity. And so that raises questions about whether the country actually needs another port. And then sometimes I think people jump to the conclusion that if this project isn't economically viable, there must be some secret military purpose. That could be true, but there are also cases where there are interest groups that like to build things. and there yeah. There are leaders that like to announce projects, regardless if they serve some underlying military. We aim. got
0: a lot of members of Congress that like to build things. I've noticed that. Well, uh, we,
2: we, we, got on, <laughs> we got off the track here for a minute. You were talking about what the Obama approach. What's the Trump approach?
3: The Trump approach has been certainly more uh, oppositional to Belt and Road. Um, you know, a lot of the rhetoric that's used to describe what China is doing is predatory economics. Um, you know, China taking advantage of other countries. Is it? In some cases, sure. I, I mean, I think a lot of these projects are negotiations and China is often the bigger, um, you know, more advantaged partner at the negotiating table, it often takes advantage of those situations. But there are things that the U.S. can, can do to empower developing countries to be their own best advocates. Um, and I also think there's a, you know, there's a range of reactions that we see to the Belt and Road. Um, there's India, which opposes it because it, you know, Projects go Chinese. Through, well, and projects some projects go through disputed Kashmir, which is a you know that's a sovereignty issue for them. Japan is certainly not a Belt and Road booster. Um, very, you know, I think has a has a pretty sober-eyed view of what this thing is and could mm-hmm. be. Sure, but they've taken a much new, more nuanced position on this, and they've they've said, look, the world needs infrastructure. It needs. Let's talk about the type of infrastructure it needs, um, and so let's put some conditions around the types of projects we would support whether China builds them, whether we build them, whether somewhere else builds them. So I think there's there's probably a room for a little more nuance in the US um, position how on would, this. How would, how would
0: there be a, a governing body that regulates what China would do across this region?
3: So the G20 actually recently announced a set of quality infrastructure principles. Right. So that's been one forum in which these discussions have happened. It happened first in the G7 framework. Right, but those are principles, like how would this actually be enforced? Ultimately, recipient countries need to – their response, their sovereign countries, they need yeah. to decide how they want to handle this. Right.
1: Um, so, you well, know, ultimately, it comes down to the projects. And a lot of these – if these projects are crazy, it doesn't matter who's building them. They shouldn't be built. And there, there are – infrastructure projects are rife with insane priorities, bridges to nowhere. Uh, you know, rail systems and subway systems that get half built. I mean, that's, that's notorious for that. So yeah. I don't know how you avoid it. But, yeah.
3: Uh, I mean, even in the best business environments, these yes. projects are typically cost more than expected, take longer than it's expected. really easy to get white elephants all over Deliver course. fewer benefits right. than expected. So, so do
0: you, in your view, do you
3: think the United States should be trying to counter
0: Belt and Road with its own infrastructure push in Asia?
3: I think the best response to the Belt and Road is not even really a response to the Belt and Road per se. I think it's the U.S. pursuing its own interests, putting forward its own positive economic vision. I think trade needs to be a really important part of that. That's a, a U.S. strength. We love trade, <laughs> indeed we do. But I don't. I think it would be I think it would be short-sighted and sort of reactionary for us to get focused on only infrastructure. I mean, that's China's game. It has the companies, um, it has the domestic political economy for certain types of infrastructure. You know, the US does a lot of other things much better, providing services around a lot of uh, economic activity.
0: Yeah, we don't have seven of the largest construction companies in the world. Not anymore. No. And so these seven construction companies are state-owned, obviously.
3: Yeah, and they receive generous subsidies from the Chinese government, and the government will facilitate deals for them.
1: When your customer's printing money, you can become a big company very quickly, you know? Back to the currency exactly. administration. So.
3: We've tied it all together.
0: John, thank you for coming here and enlightening us about Belt and Road. If our listeners want to learn more, please visit the Reconnecting Asia microsite. It's very easy. Type in Reconnecting Asia, and it'll pop right up. And it also is linked from the CSIS website. John, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. To our listeners. If you have a question for The Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have The Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to The Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.